a welcome reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Our first headline on today's front page reads, Bill, crack down on distracted driving but ban traffic cameras. Grieving families urge Republican senator to propose standalone hands-free driving bill by Tom Barton. Iowa law enforcement officials and grieving families of Iowans killed by distracted drivers packed a Senate committee room Tuesday over a proposal that would pair a ban on automated traffic cameras with cracking down on motorists who talk into their smartphones as they drive. More than a dozen individuals voiced opposition to a proposal by Senator Brad Zahn, Republican of Urbandale, who has tried for years to ban traffic cameras to link the two issues into one bill. A Senate subcommittee voted two to one to advance Senate Study Bill 3016. Zahn has pushed to ban the cameras ever since he received a citation in 2011 after a camera captured his son speeding while driving the senator's vehicle in Cedar Rapids. While he said he dislikes being on the opposite side of an issue from law enforcement, Zahn said he believes fundamentally the traffic cameras are unconstitutional. The devices capture video of vehicles speeding or running red lights. Law enforcement then reviews the images captured by a camera vendor, which shows the license tag number, and issues citations to the vehicle's registered owners. Relatives of three Iowans killed by distracted drivers with a smartphone pleaded with Zahn to advance a standalone bill to bar handheld use of mobile, drive, drive, mobile devices while driving. Officers say the state's prohibition on texting while driving, enacted in 2017, is difficult to enforce because drivers can say they instead were making a call or using the device's GPS, which is still allowed under Iowa law. The bill provides exceptions for the use of an electronic device in a voice-activated or hands-free mode and for first responders while on duty and healthcare professionals in the course of emergency situations. It also provides exceptions for receiving a weather or emergency alert, reporting an emergency situation, for those operating farm machinery and for certain radio operators and transit drivers. More people died on Iowa roads last year than in each of the past five years. A total of 378 people died in car crashes in Iowa in 2023, a 12% increase from 2022. Excessive speed, distracted driving, impaired driving, and not wearing seatbelts are some of the motorist behaviors that pushed fatalities. Law enforcement officials have asked lawmakers in recent years to pass legislation to ban handheld use of mobile devices while driving in Iowa. Senate File 547 passed overwhelmingly in the Iowa Senate earlier this year, but the House hit the brakes. Zahn said he chose to pair the two proposals because I want to pass something finally, suggesting House Republicans' support for banning traffic cameras would ease concerns about the distracted driving portion of the bill. It's a huge safety problem, said Zahn, who had voted against the hands-free while driving bill in the Senate. Troopers and officers from Cedar Rapids, Davenport, Des Moines, Dubuque, and Fayette urged Zahn to drop his proposal to ban traffic cameras in Iowa after July 1, 2025. Lobbyists representing cities and police organizations said the proposals would limit an important traffic safety tool that has proved effective in reducing traffic crashes. Senator Tony Bisignano, Democrat of Des Moines, opposed the bill, saying it would impose burdensome regulations and take away an important revenue stream for public safety. Cedar Rapids installed its first speed cameras in 2010. As of March 2022, at least 19 Iowa cities and towns operated automatic traffic enforcement systems, including Sioux City, Cedar Rapids, Davenport, Muscatine, Council Bluffs, Waterloo, LeClaire, Strawberry Point, Hudson, Chester, Buffalo, Miles, Independence, and Old Wine, according to a Legislative Services Agency report. 
Marion added automated traffic cameras in 2023. Lawmakers have floated several ways to regulate traffic cameras over the past several years, citing concerns about privacy and arguing some cities use them to drive revenue. Cedar Rapids uses the cameras at nine locations along its primary highway system and major thoroughfares for both speed and red light enforcement, including four-speed cameras around the S-curve on Interstate 380 near downtown. Our automated traffic enforcement program in Cedar Rapids has always been about safety, Cedar Rapids Police Captain Cody Estling told lawmakers, and we know our system has saved lives. Estling and other police officials from across the state said the cameras provide 24-7 traffic monitoring and enforcement at a significantly lower cost than deploying officers to those areas. That frees cities to focus strained resources elsewhere. Law enforcement officials said they're willing to put guardrails on the use of traffic cameras to make sure that they're used for safety as opposed to generating revenue. Zahn said he's concerned by the proliferation of systems in smaller communities, saying he's heard from police officials in those communities that the cameras are being used to generate revenue because of a lack of funding. That's not the reason to put traffic enforcement cameras in, he said. Three charter schools coming to Cedar Rapids by fall 2025. Independently run public schools give families choice, charter schools at charter school advocates say, by Grace King. Three charter schools are expected to open in Cedar Rapids by the fall of 2025, after the Iowa State Board of Education approved the applications earlier this month. One of the charter schools, which will be called Empowering Excellence, is being opened by Cedar Rapids resident and former educator Sarah Swayze. She is hoping to attract high school juniors and seniors to the school who otherwise are at risk of dropping out of high school. I feel like this is a step that Cedar Rapids needs to catch those kids that are not successful in a traditional school, Swayze said. In total, eight charter school applications were approved January 11th for proposed schools in Cedar Rapids and Des Moines. Already, there are three charter schools in Iowa. Most recently, Horizon Science Academy opened this fall in Des Moines. Swayze said she hopes to launch Empowering Excellence this fall with no more than 78 students and grow the program to about 170 students within the first five years. The charter school's curriculum would be offered through the online learning platform Edmentum. Swayze also operates Empowering Youths of Iowa, a nonprofit that provides one-on-one -on -one mentoring to students in the Cedar Rapids Community School District. It has helped dozens of students graduate high school since June 2021 by providing them a safe space to learn and lunch during the week. Currently, about 60 students in the Cedar Rapids Community School District use Empowering Youths of Iowa services. It will continue operating separately from the charter school to help improve graduation rates in Cedar Rapids. But with two other charter schools planning to open their doors to K-12 kids in Cedar Rapids in fall 2025, Swayze is worried about the impact charter schools will have on traditional public schools. I want a small group of kids. Now that I look at the larger picture with three charter schools coming to Cedar Rapids, I realize that is a major impact, she said. The other charter schools, which plan to open in Cedar Rapids for the fall of 2025, will offer a combined K-12 education with an emphasis on career exploration beginning in kindergarten. The two schools could serve around 1,500 students total. Civica, a company based in Florida with charter schools in Florida, Colorado, and Nevada, is proposing opening K-5 to grade elementary schools in Cedar Rapids and Des Moines. Civica is looking for a property to build a brand new facility in the Cedar Rapids Community School District Attendance Zone, according to the application. Quest Forward, which has schools in California and Nebraska, is proposing opening a 6th to 12th grade school in Cedar Rapids. They are evaluating existing school buildings and properties for building a new school in Cedar Rapids. Mike Huglid, Executive Director of the Iowa Coalition for Public Charter Schools, 
So the schools are looking for property in Cedar Rapids near the lowest performing schools. If a family is saying they don't want to be in a middle school with 750 students, we're that option for them, Huglet said. The Iowa Coalition for Public Charter Schools, which launched last spring, is in its first year. The coalition helped facilitate applications to launch five of the eight new public charter schools in Iowa. Charters are a reaction to a need for a new school model or to failure, Huglet said, adding that charters provide opportunities residents want and need. Quest Forward eventually will enroll about 100 students per grade level in 6 through 12, said Ray Ravalia, senior advisor at Opportunity Education, Quest Forward's parent company. It will start with 6th and 9th graders and grow the middle and high school programs as those students rise through the system. Ravalia hopes for about 40 to 60 kids per grade in the first year. Ravalia said Quest Forward hopes to hire a principal and teachers local to Cedar Rapids who know the community. What we offer is relentlessly focused on active, engaged learning, Revalia said. I think there's a lot of value in letting parents make choices about which school best serves their children. In Iowa, local tax dollars remain with traditional public school districts, and charters are not currently eligible to receive the same state categorical funds that traditional schools receive, said Emily Ryman, enrollment coordinator at Horizon Service Academy in Des Moines. Charter schools are tuition-free schools families can voluntarily enroll in, that are publicly funded but independently run under an approved charter with the state. In Iowa, charter schools receive per-pupil state aid. Charter schools do not select students and do not charge tuition. If more students apply to enroll in the charter school than there are seats available, students will be accepted through a lottery. The other charter school applicants that have been approved are Oakmont, which operates 16 schools in Ohio, is planning to open a school in Des Moines in August. And Scholarship Prep, which has four schools in California, will open an elementary and middle school in Des Moines. Charter schools aren't trying to take over public education. The majority of kids will still go to their traditional local high school, but we offer something different families want and need, Huglet said. Oakmont in Des Moines, for example, will offer students education in skilled trades and partner with local industries, such as Habitat for Humanity, where students will build houses to get experience in construction, plumbing, carpentry, and electrical. Quest Forward will rethink education in a way that focuses on student engagement, active learning, and using technology to facilitate what's happening in the classroom and not replace it, Revalia said. It's an alternative choice to traditional public school and strives to prepare students for life, whether that's going to a four-year college, trade school, or on-the-job learning, Revalia said. Traditional public schools have much less opportunity for distinctiveness, Revalia said. With charter schools being independently managed, each of them can have their own identity and personality. It helps parents really make a decision on what is going to fit their child, he said. GOP bill. Schools must show disputed video of fetus growth. Meanwhile, Senate Dems unveil package of reproductive freedom bills by Aaron Murphy, Tom Barton, and Caleb McCullough. State policies on pregnancy and early infancy were on the agenda Tuesday at the Iowa Capitol. Republicans in the agenda-setting majority advanced bills requiring schools to provide instruction on early development in a pregnancy and extending child support payments to cover expenses for the mother's pregnancy and the child's birth. The minority party Democrats in the Senate unveiled their package of bills they said are designed to ensure women's reproductive freedom, a proposal to enshrine abortion rights in the Iowa Constitution, access to over-the-counter birth control, and a right to access contraception the reinstatement of a, fa- of a state family planning program, and expanded post-birth coverage for Medicaid patients. Starting in elementary school, Iowa's K-12 schools would be required to provide instruction on the development of a pregnancy, using an anti-abortion rights video as a model, 
under legislation advanced by Iowa House Republicans. The bill would require schools in 1st through 12th grade to show a high-definition ultrasound video of at least three minutes showing development of the brain, heart, sex organs, and other organs in fetal development. Schools also would need to show students a computer-generated animation comparable to the Meet Baby Olivia video developed by Live Action that shows every stage of an embryo and fetus development. The rules would apply to both public and accredited private schools. Live Action is an organization opposed to abortion rights known for recording undercover videos at Planned Parenthood. The Meet Baby Olivia video shows the development of a pregnancy and says that conception is the moment that life begins. Republicans and anti-abortion rights activists who spoke at the meeting said the information mandated in the bill is based on science. Ryan Benn, a lobbyist for the family leader, a conservative religious organization, said he hopes the bill would impart a pro-life worldview on students and influence them to get not to get abortions later in life. Ultimately, we just want to teach kids at a young age that life begins at conception and that baby in, and that baby in mother's womb, she's a baby, Ben said. Lobbyists for school groups told lawmakers the bill introduces unnecessary mandates into school instruction. Advocates for abortion access said the bill injects propaganda into schools and argued the live action video is medically inaccurate. I really feel like this video is offering facts to kids that are disguised as facts and really falsehoods, said Representative Molly Buck, a Democrat from Ankeny. When teaching human growth and development, I think that teachers really need to stick to the facts that medical doctors are sticking to. Republican Representative Ann Osmondson of Volga, who sponsored the bill, defended the content of the group's video and said there is a differing of opinions on what is medically and scientifically accurate. Osmondson and Craig Johnson, a Republican from Independence, voted to move the bill out of the subcommittee. Buck voted against it. The bill, House File 2031, is now eligible for consideration by the full House Education Committee. Senate Democrats at a news conference Tuesday said they believe a majority of Iowans support their package of reproductive health care bills. They published a series of bills. Senate Joint Resolution 2001 would amend the Iowa Constitution to guarantee a right to a spectrum of prenatal childbirth and postpartum care, including abortions. Senate File 2141 would permit pharmacists to order and dispense birth control without a doctor's prescription. Senate File 2137 would reinstate the state family planning program, which included state funding to Planned Parenthood, a program that Republicans defunded in 2017. Senate File 2135 would establish in state law that Iowans have a right to access and obtain contraception. Senate Democrats also highlighted Senate File 57 introduced last year, which would extend postpartum coverage for Medicaid patients to a full year. Currently, that Medicare that that care is covered by Medicaid for 60 days. For years now, we've seen attacks on reproductive freedom, including the six-week abortion ban Republican politicians forced into law last year, said Senator Pam Yocum, the leader of the Senate Democrats from Dubuque. Iowans have a right to live their lives without unnecessary intrusion from their government. State House Republicans in a special legislative session last year passed a law that would ban abortions once a fetus heartbeat can be detected, which proponents of such laws say happens about six weeks at about six weeks of pregnancy. That law is on hold while it is challenged in court. Another bill advanced Tuesday by House Republicans would extend court-ordered child support payments to cover expenses related to the mother's pregnancy and the child's birth. Under current law, judges consider the income that both parents earn in determining child support after the child is born. Representative John Wills, a Republican from Spirit Lake, said Iowa would be the first state to force men to support their child from the moment of conception if the bill becomes law. 
Paternity tests can be performed during or after a pregnancy, Will said. Once paternity is established, a judge could order the father to retroactively provide financial support during the nine months of pregnancy. A court also could order the father to provide health insurance coverage to the mother during pregnancy, Will said. We've got to take care of that baby before it's born. If we do, it's going to be a better, healthier baby in better shape to be able to take on the world, he said. The mother is going to be able to finish school. The mother's going to be able to do all these things, have less stress on her life. It is going to be better for all, and maybe we can even keep women off the welfare system because they've got this extra support. House File 2103 passed out of committee 2-0, to zero, with Wills and Representative Steve Holt, Republican of Denison, signing off. It now goes to the House Judiciary Committee. Subcommittee member and Democratic Representative Megan Srinivas, a Des Moines physician, said she supports the bill but held off on signing until language is clarified regarding the ability of a mother who is diagnosed with a mental illness to file a complaint and testify. One person injured in CR apartment fire by Emily Anderson. One person was injured in a fire that broke out Tuesday in an apartment in northeast Cedar Rapids, according to the Cedar Rapids Fire Department. First responders were called to the 1500 block of Oakland Road Northeast at 3.47 a.m. Tuesday for a report of an apartment fire. Firefighters quickly brought the fire under control and fire damage was limited to the apartment where the fire started. The rest of the building was ventilated to remove smoke, a news release states. One person, described as an older adult female, was taken to Mercy Medical Center with minor injuries, the release stated. Bills would cut benefits for undocumented immigrants by Caleb McCullough. Over the protests of immigrants and activists who filled Iowa State Capitol committee rooms this week, Republican lawmakers advanced bills that would put stricter limitations on undocumented immigrants. The bills would make undocumented immigrants ineligible for in-state tuition and public assistance programs and create a new penalty for transporting or harboring undocumented immigrants. Republicans said the bills would ensure that taxpayer money does not go to people who are not in the U.S. legally. Opponents of the bill said they would punish immigrant communities and instill fear in an already vulnerable population. Hardworking Iowa taxpayers should not be footing the bill for individuals who are not in the country legally through any public assistance program or tuition benefits, Iowa Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley wrote in a newsletter this week. House File 2128 would require that a person provide proof of U.S. citizenship or proof that they are lawfully present in the country to be considered for in-state tuition at Iowa's public universities and community colleges. Immigrants and activists speaking to an Iowa House subcommittee on Monday said the bill would deny education to a swath of Iowans who grew up and pay taxes in the state. According to estimates from the Migration Policy Institute, there were about 37,000 undocumented immigrants in Iowa as of 2019. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA, created legal protections for some people born before 2007 who were brought into the U.S. illegally as children. Most undocumented graduating high school students today are not eligible for DACA, according to FWD.US, an immigration political advocacy organization. Ari Davis was among the many people who spoke against the bill Monday. She said she came to the U.S. from Mexico at age three. She received DACA status and, paying in-state tuition, went to Des Moines Area Community College, then graduated from Iowa State University with a degree in criminal justice. She said she has since started a family, bought a home in Iowa, and become a U.S. citizen two years ago. But I can assure you that I've been an American since I was three years old, she said. I'm here to defend the pursuit of happiness for other Americans who are lacking the legal status of an American, but are American in every single other way. 
Representatives for Iowa Public Universities and Community Colleges said the bill would be an administrative challenge for colleges and universities that would need to inquire about citizenship of every prospective student. State universities' current guidelines allow anyone who graduated from an Iowa high school to claim residency in the state for tuition purposes. The bill was passed out of the subcommittee by Republican Representative Skylar Wheeler of Hull and Taylor Collins of Minneapolis. Representative Sammy Sheets, Democrat of Cedar Rapids, voted against the bill. Another proposed bill would require non-citizens to be legal residents in order to obtain public assistance through programs such as the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and Medicaid. The bill would require non-citizens to submit documentation about their status and would, would require the state to use a federal tool to determine citizenship status. Federal law already prohibits an undocumented immigrant from receiving public assistance benefit. The bill, House File 2112, also would create a penalty for smuggling of persons. The bill would make transporting or harboring an undocumented person with the intent to conceal them from law enforcement a crime under state law. Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, who chaired the subcommittee on the bill, said Iowa State Patrol officers have reported being unable to detain a person who was transporting undocumented immigrants through the state. The bill would make the crime punishable by a Class C felony or a Class B felony if the smuggled person carries a risk of bodily injury or death, is under 18, or if the offender carries a firearm. It would be a Class A felony if the smuggled individual became a victim of sexual abuse, suffered serious injury, or died because of the action. Opponents of the bill said the smuggling provisions of the bill would instill fear into immigrant communities and create a chilling effect for people who work with undocumented immigrants. No one at the subcommittee meeting spoke in favor of the bill. CR Man Charged with Shooting at Other Man by Emily Anderson A Cedar Rapids man was arrested last weekend on charges he shot at another man Friday at a residence in Cedar Rapids. Charles Russell Wheeler, 52, is charged with intimidation with a dangerous weapon, assault while displaying a dangerous weapon, carrying a weapon while intoxicated, and reckless use of a firearm. According to a criminal complaint, Wheeler threatened another man with a handgun Friday at 1304 1st Avenue Northwest. As the other man was backing away, Wheeler pointed the gun at him and fired one round. The complaint does not say if the man was injured. Wheeler was arrested Saturday and was being held at the Lynn County Jail on a cash-only $7,000 bail. Iowa GOP advances bill on religious liberty protections. Civil rights, business groups oppose plan citing legal chaos by Caleb McCullough. Republican Iowa lawmakers advanced a bill Tuesday that would set a heightened legal standard in cases where religious freedom questions are at odds with state law. The bill, titled Religious Freedom Restoration Act, is modeled after federal legislation that was signed into law by Democratic President Bill Clinton in 1993. Companion bills were passed by majority Republicans out of the Iowa House and Iowa Senate subcommittees Tuesday, making them eligible for a vote in the full committees. The lone Democrat on each subcommittee voted against the legislation. I've worked on this bill for many years, and I feel like this fleshes out the First Amendment protections that are in the Constitution, said Republican Senator Sandy Salmon of Janesville during the subcommittee meeting. Under the bill, courts would need to apply strict scrutiny, the highest legal standard, to claims that a law violates a person's religious liberty. To survive the test, the law would need to serve a compelling state interest and be narrowly tailored to accomplish it. The federal law applies only to the federal government, but at least two dozen states have passed state-level versions. Civil rights groups and some business groups opposed the bill, saying it would allow people and businesses to discriminate against people on religious grounds. 
Connie Ryan, executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Iowa, said the First Amendment already provides the necessary protections for religious freedom, and the bill would allow broad exemptions to state laws for religious actions. The religious exemption legislation is broad and vague, leaving things open to abuse and potentially harming people, she said. The law could be used by anyone to claim that they don't know to follow any other law leading to legal chaos. Opponents said it could allow someone to refuse to allow a same-sex couple to adopt a child, a landlord to refuse to rent to an unmarried couple, and a business owner to refuse to serve customers based on their religion. Representative Lindsey James, a Democrat from Dubuque, voted against the bill in the House. A Presbyterian minister, James said she cares deeply about religious freedom, but that the bill weaponizes religious beliefs to justify discrimination. The federal law was invoked in a 2014 case involving Hobby Lobby in which the U.S. Supreme Court decided the law allowed private corporations to deny employees insurance coverage of contraception on religious grounds. A federal judge in Utah later that year cited that decision in his decision to exempt testimony in a case in which a fundamentalist Mormon church was accused of using child labor. Some top employers and business groups in Iowa, including Principal Financial Group and the Iowa Chamber Alliance, are registered against the bill, arguing it will make it more difficult to recruit employees and turn away potential business development. Man found dead in Coralville, suspected in two Illinois homicides, by Emily Anderson. A man police believed committed two homicides January 24th in Moline, Illinois, was found dead later that same day by a self-inflicted gunshot wound in Coralville, authorities said. According to a news release from the Moline Police Department, two people were found dead in two different locations January 24th in Moline. Police there responded to a call about an unknown medical emergency about 9.41 a.m. and found Stephen Herring, 55, dead. Then at 10.37 a.m. and on another call, police found Donna Erickson, 79, deceased. Investigators determined both Herring and Erickson had been shot by a handgun. Police suspected Chad Hillier, 55, of Alito, Illinois, of shooting both victims. Cell phone records and video surveillance collected during the investigation showed he was near both houses that morning. He was the son of Erickson and a close friend of Herring. Police executed a search warrant at Hillier's property in Alito and found a bullet casing that matched casings found at the scene of both shootings. At 9 p.m. January 24th, the Coralville Police Department was called to a rural road off Interstate 380 on the border with Tiffin, for a report of a suspicious vehicle. Hillier was found dead inside the vehicle from what seemed to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound, according to the news release. All three deaths remain under investigation in Rock Island County, Illinois, and Johnson County. Anyone with information is asked to call the police department at 309-797-0401. Cedar Rapids Narrows Down Police Chief Search by Emily Anderson. The search for a new Cedar Rapids police chief is almost over, nearly 10 months after the previous chief, Wayne German, aged out of the position and retired. The Cedar Rapids Civil Service Commission met Tuesday to narrow the pool of applicants to four people, Jennifer Burkhofer, Je Jeff Coday, Tom Whitten, and David Dostal. Burkhofer is a lieutenant for the Douglas County Sheriff's Department in Douglas County, Nebraska. Coday is a captain in the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Whitten is a chief deputy for the El Paso County Sheriff's Department in El Paso, Texas. Dostal is an internal applicant, a captain with the Cedar Rapids Police Department. The list of approved candidates will be sent to City Manager Jeff Pomerantz, who will determine which candidates should move on to the in-person interview stage and be invited to a community event next week. He could invite all four candidates. The event will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. February 7th at the Cedar Rapids Doubletree by Hilton Convention Center, 
350 First Avenue Northeast. It will be an open house format. The in-person interviews will be conducted February 7th by five panels made up of city and community leaders. After the interviews and the meet and greet, Pomerantz will identify two final candidates and he may visit the candidates' current departments and communities. The final step will be Pomerantz's appointment of a chief with the advice and consent of the mayor and council. The four candidates were narrowed down from 17 total applicants. The city has worked with consultants from the International Association of Chiefs of Police throughout the hiring process, which included a community outreach stage to determine what community members want in a new chief. Bill requires foreign owners of Iowa farmland to report more. Reynolds' proposal would keep much of the new information from the public by Aaron Murphy. Foreign owners of Iowa farmland would be required to report more detailed information, although most of that information would not be made public, under legislation that got its first legislative approval Tuesday at the Iowa Capitol. The legislation was proposed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, who raised the topic during her January 9th condition of the state address. Her proposal would require more robust reporting of information about foreign farmland owners, require the Iowa Secretary of State's office to increase its tracking of such ownership, and grant the Iowa Attorney General's Office broader subpoena authority to investigate potential violations of state law about foreign farmland ownership. Reynolds and state lawmakers in support of the proposal say Iowa already has strong laws regarding foreign land ownership and her bill would make them even stronger. I think this is a great piece of legislation that's going to advance our understanding of who our neighbors are, Senator Dan Zumbaugh, a Republican from Ryan and a farmer, said during the subcommittee hearing. And I think all of us need to know who they are. Currently, that might be a question. But other than the people of Iowa, Iowa's land is the most precious resource we have. And this bill will clarify who landowners are. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Virginia T. Wilhelm Homewood, 96, of Cedar Rapids, died peacefully in her sleep on January 23rd. A visitation will be held at St. Ludmilla Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 3rd, followed by a Mass at 10.30. A luncheon will be held immediately afterwards at the hotel at Kirkwood Center at 7725 Kirkwood Boulevard Southwest. Virginia was born on a farm in Wacoma, Iowa on August 26, 1927, to Joseph and Catherine Wickman Wilhelm. She realized at an early age that she did not want a life on the farm. She moved to Cedar Rapids in her late teens during World War II and married Ray Homewood on June 19, 1947. They had an idyllic marriage until his early death in January of 1977, just shy of 30 years of marriage. In addition to providing a warm, welcoming, and happy home, she also worked outside the home. She worked for over 30 years at Jefferson High School before retiring in 1997. After retiring, she worked at Iowa grocery stores for Anderson Erickson for a few years. In addition to working, she volunteered for St. Ludmilla's at the Colette Festival at Bingo and even helped to clean the church. Virginia was an active member of St. Ludmilla's Catholic Church for 70 years before moving to LaGrange, Illinois to be near her daughter in 2016. Memorial donations may be made in Virginia's name to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital or the St. Ludmilla's Building Fund. Roger Sidney Clark, 91, of Central City, passed away on Saturday, January 27th at Mercy in Iowa City. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday, February 2nd at the United Church of Christ in Central City. Memorial service will begin at 10 a.m. on Saturday, February 3rd at the church. 
Interment will take place at a later date at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Roger was born on July 14, 1932 in Morley, the son of Sidney Chalins and Gladys Kegel Clark. He graduated from McKinley High School and went on to serve honorably in the United States Army during the Korean conflict. On September 7, 2008, Roger was united in marriage to Susan K. Sukup in Central City. He was a traffic manager for Crandick Rail for over 30 years and was a lifelong farmer. Roger was the president of the Chamber of Commerce, on the Goodwill Board, the United Way Board, and a member of American Legion Post 421. He taught Sunday school for years and learned to play piano by ear. Roger will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved him. Memorials may be directed to the family. Ronald E. Augustine II of Hiawatha passed away Monday, January 29, 2024, following an extended illness, at his home with his wife of 52 years by his side. Ron was born on July 15, 1939, to Ronald and Garnet Clemens August, Augustine. He was a 1957 graduate of Franklin High School in Cedar Rapids. Upon graduation, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy and served in the Pacific Rim from 1957 to 1967. On August 21, 1971, he married Patricia Kellogg Weber. Ron loved to travel, do crossword puzzles, go to local dirt track racing, watch NASCAR, and have coffee at the Pizza Palace in Center Point and he loved all his cats. He held several different positions throughout his career and retired from branded apparel in Marion. Visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel State Room on Thursday, February 1st from 5 to 8 p.m. A funeral service with military rites will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel State Room on Friday, February 2nd at 11 a.m. with certified celebrant Dr. James Coyle officiating. Please dress casually. Memorial contributions may be directed to the family. Mary Patricia Pat Shima of Cedar Rapids died peacefully on January 22, 2024, surrounded by family. Born in Chicago and raised in Sterling, Illinois, Pat was the loving daughter of George Francis and Mary Welch Foley, and a favorite sister of Maureen Norton. Her cousin Don Hilliker was her closest childhood companion, and along with his wife Kai, a lifelong friend. Pat graduated from Newman Catholic High School in Sterling and Barak College of the Sacred Heart in Lake Forest, Illinois. She met Edward Shima, the love of her life, at a Barat social in 1962 and married him in 1966. Pat and Ed lived in Ipswich, United Kingdom, Boston, Massachusetts, and Rochester, Minnesota, before moving to Nebraska in 1975. They raised their three children in Omaha, and Pat developed a deep and lasting affection for her adopted hometown. Pat and Ed's love of books and travel and delight in banter sustained a marriage lasting 57 years. In the 1980s, Pat went back to school and received a master's in English from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. She shared her love of poetry and literature with her children, instilling in them a deep appreciation for humanities. A massive Christian burial and interment will take place in late spring or early summer in Sterling, Illinois. Donations in Pat's name can be made online to Hospice of Mercy in Cedar Rapids. Online condolences may be left at cedarmemorial.com. Professor Emeritus Gerald L. Jerry Nordquist, 93, of North Liberty, passed away peacefully on Friday, January 26th, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. A private remembrance for family and friends will be held at the Unitarian Universalist Society in Coralville at a later date. To view a full obituary and to leave online condolences for the family, please go to lensingfuneral.com. Mark Bader, 61, of Monticello, died suddenly at his home Sunday, January 28th. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 Thursday morning, February 1st, at the Peace United Church of Christ. Pastor Frank Shepard, Jr. will officiate at the services. 
Friends may call from 4 until 7 Wednesday at the Getch Funeral Home in Monticello. Thoughts, memories, and condolences may be left at getchonline.com. Mark Leonard Bader was born January 11, 1963 at John McDonald Hospital in Monticello. He was the son of George and Joe Marie Rickles Bader. Mark graduated from the Monticello Community Schools in 1981 and then joined his father at Bader Masonry. Mark passed the business on to his son, Tim, in 2022, but has continued to give his guidance and advice. Mark liked watching football, talking ranger taking ranger rides, going boating, watching gun smoke, mushroom and deer hunting, traveling, and going to talk with his friends at Accent Construction. He enjoyed taking his 1970 El Camino to car shows. His favorite and most precious time was spent with his granddaughter, Bianca. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving on to the editorial page, there is one letter to the editor today. It is from Frank Olson of Cedar Rapids. The headline reads, Legislated Patriotism? How about legislators, too? House Study Bill 587 has advanced out of subcommittee in Des Moines. This proposed legislation would require public school students to sing the Star-Spangled Banner each day. Further, it would require instruction on the words, meaning, and history of the national anthem, including how to love, honor, and respect the song. And on patriotic occasions, schools would have to direct students and teachers to sing all four verses of the anthem. The kids will get an extra dose of patriotism on those special days. The bill also would require social studies instruction in grades 1 through 12 to include instruction on the object and principles of the government of the United States. What activities of the school day will be eliminated to make time for this singing and instruction? Who in Des Moines Moines defines what the object and principles of the government are? If the Iowa legislature is going to legislate patriotism through a bill such as this, the legislature should lead by example. Legislators should be similarly required to sing the national anthem every day they meet. It wouldn't hurt to have legislators learn the object and principles of the government of the United States either. That's a letter from Frank Olson of Cedar Rapids in today's Gazette. Here is a guest column by Linda L. Malloy. It's titled, If It Works, Leave It Alone. I have been a school psychologist in Iowa for over 40 years, serving in three Eastern Iowa AEAs, as well as a professor of special education for 25 years. I have considerable experience with the birth to 21 range of children with disabilities and the educational and social-emotional needs of all children and adolescents in our schools. I feel members of the legislature need to take a long and intense evaluation of the lauded across the U.S. AEA structure and functioning. Few, if any, of them have worked in an AEA, so they may not be aware of the following. One, all students benefit from the services offered by the AEAs. Curriculum and media experts, counseling and social work that is not confined to just the 13 to 14 percent of Iowa students receiving special education services, the team approach of social workers, speech and language clinicians, and school psychologists who coordinate on the assessments of children referred for learning and or behavior issues, along with communication with the parents and teachers of these children in order to produce the best intervention plans for each student. These professionals also provide continual assessments and work to change them if needed. Number two, this team approach would be difficult to achieve if different professionals came from different private organizations as has been put forward by the governor. Number three, also in regard to statements by the governor, she and perhaps others do not understand the type of assessment that captures the academic growth of special education students. Norm referenced assessment tools given to general education students are not appropriate for the special education population, 
These children have learning and behavior problems, which is why they are receiving special services. The appropriate assessments are curriculum-based in reading, writing, and math, which reveal the growth and skills during a certain period of instruction, not a yearly comparison score to non-special education students. Such assessments do not lead to the governor's term unconscionable comparisons. Number four. AEAs across time have saved money for local districts due to their collective purchasing of needed operational and educational materials. They have provided at a more manageable cost the professional in-services required for certifications, as well as multiple learning opportunities for parents and the community on emerging topics and issues. Linda L. Malloy, Ph.D., is Professor Emerita, a nationally certified school psychologist, an international lecturer on attention deficit disorder, reading instruction, involving parents in interventions and poverty's impact on academic achievement. Malloy lives in Iowa City. Here is a guest column by Bernie Hayes. What Cole didn't tell you about caucuses. Listen for the silence. Whenever you read an article or hear a report or story, there is at least one pivotal question you should ask yourself. What are they not telling you? Every communication has an objective and an agenda, assuming it is purposeful. Asking and answering that question can drive the seeker quickly to the heart of the matter. What they are not telling you can come in several forms. One, withholding information that contradicts or questions their assertions. Two, not providing a context for their assertions. And three, taking statements or portions of them out of their existing content to fabricate one more to their liking. This ruse is as old as the serpent in the garden and just as deadly. This is what I find to be the case with the piece written by Althea Cole, printed January 14th, entitled, In Lynn County, Some Republicans May Be Shut Out of Caucus. I should start this reply with a thank you to Ms. Cole, because it's possible that the fear engendered by her headline may have caused caucus goers to show up early to avoid shutout consequences. Reading Cole's headline and commentary regarding building capacity limits and regarding building capacity limits and denying entry to perfectly eligible caucus goers, I think the average reader would conclude that the present Lynn County GOP leadership is careless and heartless when it comes to eligible caucus participation. Nothing could be further from the truth. The present leadership team was soundly elected in February 2023. Since that time, regular monthly attendance has nearly tripled from 35 to 40 to 90 to 100 over the last year. The team ran and was elected on a platform to allow more attendees to become eligible to vote in county business, and those reforms were adopted. For what reason, then, would we possibly be shutting out eligible caucus goers? None except for integrity and safety. Ms. Cole's piece is heavy on the shutting out, even though we had worked out a protocol procedure whereby eligible caucus goers could, at a minimum, cast a presidential preference ballot without exceeding the capacity limits and remain safe. If we have a contractual agreement with a facility not to exceed its capacity, is that agreement waived or annulled because someone wants to vote in a caucus? The contract we had did not list caucuses as an exclusion to the capacity requirement, nor would it be honest or ethical to ignore it. Even though Ms. Cole points to the packed 2016 Convention Center caucus in Cedar Rapids as having been dangerous, she appears to be in a quandary about the scale on which safety and participation don't seem to evenly balance. This is how it balances for the present Republican leadership. The safety side will always be the heavier one. Why should my right to vote Trump or jeopardize my own safety and the safety of others. It smacks of narcissism and hubris. Listen for the silence. Oftentimes it speaks it speaks volumes. Bernie Hayes is chairman of the Lynn County Republican Party. His email is chair at lyncountygop.org. 
Now moving back to a couple of items I didn't have time for in the first half. Cedar Rapids, Iowa City Corps is more susceptible to dangerous heat pockets. NOAA helped residents map urban heat islands in the corridor this summer by Brittany Miller. The urban cores in Cedar Rapids and Iowa City are more susceptible to dangerous heat pockets than surrounding areas, according to results from a community science campaign within a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration project. Extreme heat has reigned as the number one weather-related cause of death in the U.S. for the last three decades. This burden disproportionately affects certain populations, older adults, homeless people, inmates, and low-income communities, making it, an environmental making it an environmental justice issue. That's why NOAA is partnering with, partnering with communities across the country to investigate urban heat islands. Those are urban areas that get sustainably hotter, up to a 20-degree difference, than surrounding areas due to their human-made infrastructure that absorbs and radiates heat. The Cedar Rapids and Iowa City region was one of 18 areas in 14 states and one international city that took part in this year's NOAA campaign dubbed Spot the Hot in the corridor. I really can't emphasize enough that this is the highest death-related weather event and we want to prevent those, said Sarah Maples, the Cedar Rapids Sustainability Program Manager who helped coordinate the campaign about extreme heat. We want our residents to be able to prepare for that. The key thing is building awareness and then making sure residents know what they can do to stay safe. July 23rd marked the hottest, July 2023 marked the hottest month in the global temperature record dating back to 1880, according to NASA. On July 22nd, 86 volunteers braved temperatures up to 90 degrees to map temperature variations across Cedar Rapids and Iowa City. In the morning, afternoon, and evening, they drove sensor equipment throughout 14 routes over 100 square miles. Altogether, they collected nearly 84,000 temperature and humidity measurements that were used to construct heat maps, creating a snapshot of how heat is distributed across different communities. The highest and lowest temperatures recorded on July 22nd spanned a 14.4 degree difference. Heat peaked between 3 p.m. and 4 p.m., especially in the downtown cores of Cedar Rapids and Iowa City. The areas lighting First Avenue in Cedar Rapids, for example, experienced some of the highest temperatures, as well as the developments between Collins Road and Blairs Ferry Road. In downtown Iowa City, parking lots and buildings around the pedestrian mall radiated heat throughout the day, and hot spots trailed along Gilbert Street. Parks and natural areas, on the other hand, were considerably cooler. Cedar Rapids Flaherty Park, Irene Dumpke Park, and Van Vechten Park experienced lower temperatures than their surrounding areas, along with Hickory Hill Park and Sycamore Greenway in Iowa City. The Cedar Rapids areas subjected to the most heat closely aligned to areas identified as disadvantaged through the Biden administration's Climate and Economic Justice Screening Tool, Maples said. Almost all of the census tracts around downtown Cedar Rapids, which light up hot red on the temperature maps, rank above the 65th percentile nationally for the amount of low-income households. We know that people in these areas already are going to be more vulnerable to heat, Maples said. It's a matter of thinking about how we can then use this information to inform different strategies in the future. The best way to address the heat inequity in the cities is through tree planting, she continued. Relief Cedar Rapids relied on satellite data to plan its tree replanting strategy. The new localized data could tailor planting efforts even more for the areas that need them most. It also could inform the cities where to add shade structures, water fountains, or green or cool roofs, or how to alter public transportation routes to be more equitable. It really is a matter of, I think, how can we best keep our residents safe, Maple said, and also brings awareness to the fact that we do need to be addressing heat and making that part of the conversation.
Here is today's capital notebook feature, which features bills that have moved in the Iowa legislature. Bill allowing teens to care for infants unsupervised changes. Lawmakers advance bill allowing families to monitor nursing home residents by the Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. Iowa House lawmakers approved bipartisan changes to a bill that would have allowed 16 and 17 year olds to care for younger children unsupervised at child care centers. Lawmakers amended House File 2056 to clarify that teenage child care workers would be allowed to watch younger children by themselves only to cover brief absences of an adult staff member for no more than five minutes. State Representative Devin Wood, Republican of Newmarket, gave the example of covering bathroom breaks and allowing adult staff to briefly leave the room to grab supplies or snacks for children. The House Health and Human Services Committee voted 20 to 1 to recommend passage of the bill as amended, making it eligible to debate and a vote by the full House. Representative Austin Baith, Democrat of Des Moines, who declined to sign off on the bill and subcommittee, called the amendment a dramatic improvement from the original bill. The Iowa House Health and Human Services Committee advanced House File 537 that would allow families of nursing home residents to monitor their rooms using cameras that provide a live video feed. Advocates say the measure gives family members greater ability to monitor the safety of their relatives in nursing homes. Representative Joel Fry, Republican of Osceola, one of the bill's sponsors, said concerns about privacy and confidentiality have made it difficult to pass the legislation in the past and I am thankful that the lobby was willing to work with the legislature in coming up with a compromise that works, I think, for all parties to make sure that the best health care for some of our most vulnerable is being provided. Representative Timmy Brown Powers, Democrat of Waterloo, said the state still needs to be better with the inspection and staffing of long-term care facilities in Iowa, and I don't see those two issues improving in the near future, she said, so therefore I don't think the folks living in long-term care deserve to sacrifice for those system downfalls. So at this juncture, I think this bill does a good job of protecting seniors. The bill is now eligible for debate by the full House. The Iowa House and Senate Judiciary Committee approved a number of bills, most of which had bipartisan support, and all of which are now eligible for debate by the full House or Senate. The only bill that had divided political support was a requirement for businesses to use the E-Verify program to determine all employees are legal U.S. residents. That bill, Senate File 108, passed on the strength of Republican support. The rest of the bills passed by the committee were approved without objections. Senate Study Bill 3099 would allow state legislators to file legal briefs when a state law passed by the Iowa legislature is being challenged in the courts. Senate Study Bill 3026 would increase penalties for swatting when an individual calls public entities with fake warnings of criminal or violent activity in order to draw a response from law enforcement. House File 2046 would enhance the penalties for providing or showing obscene material to a minor. House File 2048 would make it illegal to disseminate digitally altered pornographic images or deepfakes of a person without their consent. House File 2049 seeks to close a loophole by stating pornography of children generated by artificial intelligence is sexual exploitation. We have a few minutes for sports. I'll start with the most important, which is the schedule of tonight's games and where you can watch them. Teams, number three, Iowa, 19-2-8-1 at Northwestern, 7-13-2-7. Where? Welsh Ryan Arena, Evanston, Illinois. Tip-off at 7 p.m. streaming on Peacock. Oklahoma State, 11-9-4-5 at Iowa State, 12-7-6-3. At Hilton Coliseum in Ames, tip-off at 6.30 p.m. streaming on ESPN+. 
UNI 611-53 at Illinois Chicago 12753 at Credit Union One Arena in Chicago, tip off at 6 p.m. streaming on ESPN+. This is an analysis of Big Ten women's basketball. I'll read as much as I have time for. It's called Guesses and Projections. Three teams in three games will go a long way toward determining Big Ten championship by Jeff Linder. Preseason, they were picked 1-2-3. Midseason, they are at 1A, 1B, 1C. The back half of the Big Ten women's basketball season commences today, and the triumvirate of Iowa, Indiana, and Ohio State are sitting where most expected. The Hawkeyes, 19-2 overall, 8-1 Big Ten. The Hoosiers, 17-2, 8-1. And the Buckeyes, 17-3, 8-1, comprise the inner orbit to the championship race, which likely will go down to the final day of regular season competition on March 3rd. According to the Warren Nolan site, Iowa is favored in eight of its final nine league games, the lone exception at Indiana on February 22nd. The Hawkeyes are at Northwestern, 713-27 tonight. A collection of thoughts and predictions as the stretch run approaches. Penn State. Since their most recent Big Ten championship in 2013-14, the Lady Lions have finished 13th, 11th, 7th, 11th, 12th, 14th, 11th, 12th, and 12th with a 414 record last year. After their 36-point whipping of Maryland on Sunday, Penn State is in sole possession of fourth place at 6-3 and at 15-5 overall. It appears to look to be a lock to reach its first NCAA tournament in a decade. Maryland by a mile. The Terrapins, 12-8-4-5, hit rock bottom with that 112-76 loss at Penn State on Sunday. And with four games left against the three top contenders, it's going to be a chore for Cedar Rapids native Brenda Fries to get her team to 500 in the league and make a 13th consecutive NCAA tournament. Coach of the Year, Carolyn Keeger, Penn State. The Lady Lions' progress was slow but steady in her first four seasons, 723-915 to 11-8 to 14-17. Year five has been the breakthrough. The next two games at Minnesota, home versus Michigan, are keys to a possible 20-win season. Player of the year, duh. It's Iowa. If Iowans Caitlin Clark isn't a unanimous pick for the award, there's a voter with a vendetta or an agenda. The better question, who is the second best player in the Big Ten? Indiana's Mackenzie Holmes is second in the league in scoring behind Clark and first in field goal percentage, so there you go. Scoring record. With 3,389 points and figuring her season average of 32.0 points per game, she's on track to reach Kelsey Plum's NCAA Division I record of 3,527 at home against Michigan on February 15th. The two preceding hurdles, Jackie Stiles, 33.93, and Kelsey Mitchell, 3,402, will be cleared tonight. Mitchell holds the Big Ten record. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.